We're building a bureaucracy whose existence will be dependent on pandemics. They'll have a very vested interest in finding outbreaks, declaring them potential pandemics, and then responding. The WHO is set to discuss a global pandemic treaty and far-reaching amendments to the 2005 international health regulations. So what does this really mean? Today I sit down with Dr. David Bell, an expert in global health and infectious disease. He spent nearly a decade at the World Health Organization. He's on the board of PANDA, Pandemics, Data and Analytics, a group studying the world's response to COVID. Even though it doesn't directly change sovereignty, in effect it does. It takes away the ability of the people of that country to make their own decisions. How did we get here? Will lockdowns become a permanent feature of pandemic response? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Dr. David Bell, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, so we're going to talk about uh, something that everyone is buzzing about right now, this pandemic treaty. Uh, I think that's, I've heard it also called a pandemic accord. Also, the international health regulations that are being looked at simultaneously, um, this zero draft document, uh, which recently, again, is a, a lot of people are commenting on. There's a lot of kind of, you know, really scary things being said about it. Before we jump into that, okay, I want to get you just to tell me a little bit of how you have been over decades involved in the realm of global public health so people understand, you know, where you're coming from. So I'm a public health physician by background and had internal physician training before that, um, with a PhD in population health, which include disease modeling and infectious disease. So I sort of have a background in the area of disease outbreaks, etc., I, I worked in the World Health Organization um, for about eight years, coordinating the rollout of malaria diagnostics for, at a village level. And so it's a sort of global role based in the Philippines in the regional office there. Um, and then led the fever and malaria portfolios at FIND, which is a foundation in Geneva, developing diagnostics or funding that. And I was director of global health technologies at Global Good Fund, which is or was um, essentially Bill Gates' development lab in Seattle or in Bellevue, just out of Seattle. So and what has happened in the last two years is not out of the blue, um, firstly. Um, there's been a, you know, some shifts that we can go into towards the direction of sort of verticalization, centralization of health control. It was clear in March, February, March 2020, that orthodox public health was essentially being abandoned in the response to COVID-19. And we never undid these lockdowns. And lockdown was a term that was used then, it's never been used before. It's not a public health term before that. So this is a new concept. So, yeah, as this stretched out, I mean, it's very clear from basic public health that something like what we now call a lockdown will be very harmful to a lot of people and to the population overall. And that's just orthodox public health. Um, when these were being pushed and we had modelling giving numbers of dead without any relationship to age or comorbidities or the harm that a response would do and public health, again, is weighing costs and benefits. Anything you do is going to have some costs and hopefully some benefits. Whether you do it and whether you keep doing it depends on knowing that the benefits are outweighing the cost. And those benefits are in health, um, which is 
broad, it's not just physical, but as the WHO says, it's mental and societal health. Um, it's also in things like human rights, it's in the ability of families to get together and enjoy a Thanksgiving dinner or see their dying loved ones. So it's very clear that a lot of harm will be caused by lockdowns. And there was very little noise about this. And in the media, there was a very strange concentration on numbers dead. So New York Times every day would have, you know, uh, 260 dead, 300 dead. Yeah? No relationship to were these people very sick and soon to die anyway. How old were they? And it turns out they were the average age of death. They were nearly all old people. Um, you know, there was no context at all to any of this. It was just numbers out of the blue. No one could understand that, yes, but much more people died of cancer today or heart disease today, which has been the case right through. And in the global health, so international health field, the same thing was happening. We were locking down countries that were intrinsically not at risk from COVID from the beginning, because we knew it was very much from China. We knew it was concentrated on old people. Um, or not exclusively, obviously, but very significantly, and also on people with severe comorbidity, so metabolic disease, diabetes, obesity, etc. Um, if you look at countries such as in sub-Saharan Africa, there's very few people in those categories. There's less than 1% of the 1.3 billion people there are over 70. Uh, half of people in sub-Saharan Africa are 19 years or younger. So what we could class as children in the West. So they were at very low risk of this virus, but yet we were doing the same thing. We were saying they should all close down. And we know in these countries, um, closing borders, forcing unemployment, closing markets, uh, making health access, clinic access difficult, has huge implications. It's extremely harmful, as is harming economies. So we were doing this, but almost not talking about it and it, it, it from a public health point of view it's not really a sane response so you know like many people that unfortunately i think not enough um i got very concerned over the direction so there's these two elements that are going on here simultaneously being looked at right there's this pandemic treaty uh there's the this a zero draft paper that was written up after some meetings earlier this month that's you know looking to you know build that treaty in the coming year at the same time there's these international health regulations that are being updated i believe it's the 2005 regulations if you could just kind of break down for me what what is happening with these regulations then we'll go into the implications yeah yeah and there's a bit of misunderstanding about this so the international health regulations were brought in in 2005, um, stimulated a bit by the SARS outbreak in 2003, which you know, shook people up because it was a bad virus. It didn't kill many people, a few thousand people max, but it um, it you know, made a lot of noise and got people, unfortunately, excited about pandemics. And I saw that in my you know, colleagues in public health because a lot of public health isn't eye-catching and, you know, strengthening access to clinics, um, training health workers does not get on the BBC. But um, being the sort of T 
team that goes in and fights an outbreak or that vaccinates kids and saves this number from this disease does get on the BBC and is exciting. And uh, we're all human. I think this is, you know, what we've been seeing is partly a human response in the global health community, the public health community to this is much more exciting than the usual stuff. And so they want to do it. Um, so the international health regulations were brought in in 2005. They've been amended a couple of times since. They already give quite strong powers. They have force under international law and they give quite strong powers potentially to the director general of the WHO to um, declare pandemics and strongly recommend, which is very persuasive um, under this agreement, the closure of borders and um, the tran transfer of information, etc., uh, about what's going on and gives the WHO some powers in theory to manage pandemics. The way that international law has power in is varies by country by country. So, you know, there is already international law in place in this area. The IHR amendments, which are being put to the World Health Assembly next week, the governing body of the WHO, they strengthen the existing IHR in a number of ways. Um, these include taking away the necessity of consulting with the country where the outbreak is taking place for the DG. They give regional directors, and there's six of them in the different WHO regions, the power to do to declare the outbreaks and health emergencies themselves. And it puts in place, um, which in a way is most worrying to me, a mechanism called a, in a periodic review mechanism. It's, it appears to be modelled on what the Human Rights Council does in the UN. So it will review countries every year review their pandemic preparedness, see if they're complying with the IHR, um, recommend slash tell them to improve um, things that aren't up to scratch. And so this will include inspections um, into starting to build a bureaucracy around the existence of pandemics. And I think this is more dangerous than the health regulations themselves. The health regulations can be overridden in most countries by international law. It's very hard for a small country. It's easy for a big country because they're more powerful. Um, but building a sort of pandemic bureaucracy or pandemic industry like this, which is um, building on what's already been done over the last decade, is dangerous because it is going to shift resources to this area. So in a way that is detrimental to overall health. So the treaty, as it's called, um, is a parallel mechanism of the WHO. This will also have force, it's intended under international law. It's very similar to the IHR amendments, but will go further. But it is giving far more power to the WHO. It's, it will um, strengthen the ability further of the Director General to direct this. It mentions in its text issues such as misinformation, disinformation, etc. So it sounds as if it will look at having some powers over censorship and control of information, which again is extremely difficult if you've got a bureaucracy whose existence is dependent on pandemics because they have a 
very vested, they'll have a very vested interest in finding outbreaks, declaring them potential pandemics, and then responding it to the way that they will survive. So the the zero draft that is going also to the World Health Assembly this week is an initial sort of working document towards this pandemic treaty, which it's intended will be discussed and agreed next year in the WHO, in the World Health Assembly, and would then come into force when countries ratify, etc. It will take two thirds of the countries to agree to that. The IHR amendments take 50% because it's just amending what is already an international law. So I wanted to actually talk about something that I got uh, recently from uh, Congressman Chris Smith. He offered commentary on uh, the U.S. amendments, what he calls the Biden amendments that are being proposed to the work that is being done here. He said, um, the alarming amendments offered by the Biden administration to the WHO's international health regulations would grant new unilateral authority to Director General Tedros and declare, uh, to declare a public health crisis in the United States or other sovereign nations without any consultation with the U.S. or other WHO member. Specifically, the Biden amendment would strike the current regulation that requires the WHO to, quote, consult with and attempt to obtain verification from the state party in whose territory the event is allegedly occurring in, end quote, and in ceding the U.S.'s, the United States' ability to declare and respond to an infectious disease outbreak within the United States, dependent on the judgment of a, quote, corrupt and complicit U.N. bureaucracy. And of course, he flags, you know, this is something he's been talking about for decades, the potential uh, CCP, Chinese Communist Party, malign influence. What are your thoughts? And the wording is something like, you know, there should be an attempt at consultation. Um, but if the country says they, this is um, their business, go away, the WHO is now empowered to ignore that. And this has very big implications. Closing borders you know, in a lot of countries kills people. Um, it interrupts supply lines, it destroys the tourist industry on which a lot of people in a lot of countries are dependent. We don't realize in the West, but in low middle income countries, you know, these sorts of issues are people's livelihoods are dependent on this. It has huge implications for trade and economies, and we're giving the power to a person and, a, you know, and a, an emergency committee, which the DG consults with, which is being set up under the IHR amendments, but he is not required to go with that committee's finding. He can override that committee and still declare a public health emergency if he or she thinks they should. And the same power is given to these six regional directors, which which is new. So you, know, you can see the potential where countries can influence these um, individuals and the organisation to target another country. Um, or indeed um, private interests can influence these people. And it's important to pe for people to understand that WHO is different now than it was when it was set up 70 years ago. It was set up funded by countries almost exclusively with core funding. They gave money, allocated money, and the WHO decided how best to spend that. Now, most of the funding is 
directed funding, which means is given to the WHO to do this task or that activity. So it, the donor decides where the money will be spent and can be very directive, like even to the, I've seen it to the point of, um, you know, these are the people who should be involved in the work and this is where it will be done, etc. This is a timeline. And the other big change is there's a very large increase in private funding and corporate funding for the WHO. So rather than being just responsible to the funders who represent people, their countries, it is now also responsible to the funders who are private individuals or corporations such as Big Pharma, who are large direct and indirect um, funders of WHO now. And, you know, there are obvious implications there. If this is an organisation which is deciding essentially the issues that have a huge impact on the health and freedom of people and populations, that there are private corporate interests whose job is to maximise return for their shareholders, who can, you know, through funding, um, direct the direction of the WHO. And, clearly have an influence on its decisions. Now that's absolutely fascinating and I want to talk more about that because obviously there's many many implications of this shift and I mean you've you work having worked in a, a Gates funded lab you've probably seen some of these implications actually in play. Before I go there, I want to talk again, go back to the lockdowns that you were talking about earlier, right? A number of commentators, and this is also my read, are seeing this as a kind of codification of the lockdown policies that were instituted in the past, despite their, you know, incredible failure, frankly. And just this whole thing is just seems like a very, very bizarre thing. And is that how you see it? It is bizarre, but it's not bizarre, depending on, on your point of view. Um, from a public health point of view, it is bizarre. So pandemics come very infrequently. The, the WHO lists before COVID, there was four pandemics in 120 years. The big one was the Spanish flu, 1918 to 1919. Um, killed 20 to 50 million people. but probably the majority of those are thought to have died from secondary pneumonia because we didn't have antibiotics. Yeah? And you know, before that, the big pandemics, the Black Death, etc., they were mostly bacteria such as bubonic plague, Yersinia pestis, which are now not a big problem because we have antibiotics, which, you know, despite resistance and so on, still work very well. Um, after the Spanish flu, we had the influenza outbreak that was called the Asian flu in 57 to 58. There was another one, 68, 69, the Hong Kong flu. That's when Woodstock went ahead. I mean, life went on normally during these. There's about a million people are thought to have died from influenza in each, in a much smaller world population. And then we had, and the WHO lists as a pandemic, the swine flu outbreak. They declared a pandemic, but between 120 and 240, thousand people are thought to have died. That's less than die normally from the flu each year. So pandemics, apart from the pre-antibiotic era, have had very low mortalities. Um, we, you know, we can get to COVID in, in a moment, but, uh, and they're very infrequent, they occur about once a generation. So there is not a rush to change things now 
in terms of pandemics. Unless, you know, people think that there's another pandemic. I mean, it's it naturally, it doesn't make sense that there's going to be another pandemic very soon. So let's assume that there's only natural forces here and that that's, um, we can put concerns of bioterrorism, etc. aside, it's a different issue. So they're a rare event um, and we, the, the lockdowns, as I said, they're a new way of doing things. We know that they're very harmful. In 2019, so just before COVID, late 2019, the WHO released its pandemic influenza guidelines where they said only in extreme conditions do you close, you know, do you have prolonged border closures, workplace closures, etc. They strongly recommend against them because they pointed out that they can do more harm than good. We, we know that you know, the, the numbers are, are pretty shocking for what has been done from these lockdowns. So we know about, it's estimated 140 million people or more uh, have been added to you know, people on the edge of starvation. And that's likely to get worse. We've damaged supply lines and malaria has gone up. So malaria last 2020, an extra 60, 70,000 children died of malaria compared to the previous year. And much of this will be because they couldn't get to clinics when they had a fever. TB, HIV, we know will be going up. The vaccine programs for preventable childhood diseases have been severely harmed in a lot of countries. So we expect more children to die from that. Schools have been closed, which has a huge impact on the future in terms of ability for people to get out of poverty and get their countries out of poverty. Uh, it's estimated, UNICEF I think, it's estimates an extra 10 million girls will be forced into child marriage because of closure of schools and poverty. The, the UNICEF also, that they calculated in 2020 alone in South Asia, so India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, that area, six countries, about 228,000 children, infants, are thought to have died from lockdowns alone, and an extra 400,000 teenage pregnancies. So that's just in South Asia. That's just in 2020 alone from lockdowns. So extrapolate that across the world. And it's hard to see that we have not caused far more mortality from the lockdowns than from COVID itself. Even the, the, the World Bank's or the global financing facility, it's a arm of the World Bank has estimated among women and children that probably two have died from lockdown for everyone that died of COVID. So, you know, we've done, we know we've done this huge harm. You know, to their credit, UNICEF have documented this very well. Oxfam, um, even WHO with malaria, etc. The, the, we're documenting these harms, yet we're also in parallel pushing very rapidly these IHR amendments and this treaty, as it's called, um, which will make lockdowns uh, essentially, a, it seems, a permanent feature of pandemic responses. So without any detailed analysis, did this really help versus harm? So we've done huge harm and we've done it in just one or two years. If we keep doing this, this will be cumulative. Poverty is cumulative. 
interrupting supply lines is cumulative harm. So we can expect both in terms of health, in terms of so women's rights, basic human rights, education, GDP of countries, which has a big impact on health, uh, particularly in low-income countries. We can expect that we will compound this every time this happens. We're building a bureaucracy whose existence will be dependent on surveilling to try to find virus outbreaks, doing modelling, which will um, could suggest, and if you look at the modelling used in COVID, will suggest there'll be exponential growth, which is not really biologically plausible. And then that will be used to institute pandemics, to close borders, to do these things, because without this, um, this bureaucracy is, you know, they're touting sort of three to $10 billion a year to fund this bureaucracy and this response. And you can't justify that money unless you're doing something. So they'll need to, have to be declaring outbreaks and instituting these measures. So we're putting in place an extremely harmful measure without having done any serious analysis on whether it's even a good idea, was it a bad mistake, or was it overall benefit the last time we did it, which is the previous two years. And we're doing it to something which is not an urgent matter in historic terms, and certainly not compared to disease burden from other diseases, even through COVID. You know, more people die of other infectious diseases, more people die of metabolic diseases, cancer, and they die much younger on average than COVID. So, you know, let me see if I'm hearing you correctly here, right? You said it's bizarre, but it's not bizarre, right? And it essentially, I think you're saying that this is being codified possibly be simply to justify the existence of this new bureaucracy funded to the tune of multiple billions a year. So it makes sense to have surveillance for outbreaks, clearly. Yeah. Um, it makes sense to have some sort of response. The response that has happened for COVID is unusual in public health. It's very vertical. It's very pharmaceutically oriented. It included measures which we know reduce the ability to fight viral infections. So confined people to their homes, kept them out of the sun. Um, we've seen an increase in obesity in children and adults in the US because, you know, gyms are closed, there's less exercise, people can go walking, etc. Um, so that all makes us more susceptible. COVID is very much a disease of, it's a metabolic disease as much as a viral disease. If you, you know, a large proportion of the people who died from COVID have severe metabolic disease. Um, and that is why their immune system is unable to cope with this virus. So, but a lot of people have made a lot of money out of this. And you don't make money by getting people fit or not much, but you make a lot of money by selling vaccines. So, and the people who made that money are very influential as we know in pushing these measures. So, you know, you can say that that's related, you can say it's coincidental, but um, people who are outspoken in doing away with orthodox public health and saying we should lock down, we should put people out of workplaces, we should close gyms, we should stop travel. And they've generally kept traveling noticeably. 
but they've also made tens of billions of dollars from this unusual response. And they are also significant in people and corporations. And they are also significant in funding the WHO and in pushing the same sort of agenda of building this bureaucracy to fight pandemics. So we've seen, um, you know, the, the, the germ initiative, for instance, um, which is a private recommendation from Bill Gates to do essentially the same thing as is being recommended by in the WHO proposed treaty. Um, there are also other parallel mechanisms uh, by the World Bank and the IMF, etc., which are, are also allocating money towards either the same or a parallel bureaucracy. Now, normally, and in the past, the WHO is very strict on conflict of interest. Normally, if someone is making lots and lots of money from a particular public health measure, you're not saying that they're causing it, but you would exclude them from any involvement in decisions. Uh, that's just It's just common sense. It's the way that you manage society um, to manage conflict of interest and so on, because we're all human. Uh, but we, we, we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing um, large donors who have no you know, specific background in public health. We're seeing the CEOs of pharmaceutical companies being in, in the mainstream media as sort of the gurus of public health. And with without any sort of clear statements along with that, that you know, this person or this company has just made tens of billions of dollars from exactly what they're advocating. So, yeah, so if you look at this from a business point of view, it's not mad, it's a very sensible business strategy. If you have you know, essentially an amoral attitude to business, um, if you're trying to maximize returns to your shareholders and you're running a pharmaceutical company, then you need you don't concentrate on getting people physically well so that they can have natural resistance to disease. You concentrate on selling the product for the disease that they have. And the more people have a disease, the more you sell the product. I mean, that's how a business makes more money. So you, you want in public health, it's absolutely vital to exclude any possibility of that influencing population health. And we've seen for the last two years, we've seen quite the opposite in the media. And unfortunately, I think in the international health institutions and their leaders who are really working, clearly working closely with these groups rather than keeping them at arm's length. Well, let's kind of dive into how this funding structure has changed over past years. This is actually, you know, quite, quite interesting. Like, for example, it's uh, pretty obvious that, uh, you know, Bill Gates has a lot of influence at the WHO. I think his foundations are the number two funder, right, of, of the organization. Um, but that, that's not all, of course. You know, you're talking about... Uh, pharmaceutical companies funding all sorts of directed projects. So there's kind of two things I want to discuss. One is how that landscape has really changed over past years and how we arrived at this situation that you just described, you know, over the last two years. That's one piece. 
And then the second piece is, you know, basically what are the implications of these types of structures where, you know, very, very directed funding is going for very directed work that I suppose might be in the direct interest of the of the funder, right? If you go back 25 years, um, there was the World Health Organization and then some organizations like UNICEF, etc., that were involved in global health, public health. It was called you know, tropical health or international health then. Um, and not many others. So there were schools that concentrated on this, but they were low funded. Disease programs in countries had very low funding. Around the year 2000, a lot of money started to become available. Um, initially from countries and the Global Fund for um, AIDS, TB and malaria was instituted to fight those three diseases. And the idea was that it would be a conduit for money to the countries. Uh, it's now grown into quite a big bureaucracy, but it's become the main funder internationally of um, HIV, TB and malaria, with the exception of HIV, where PEPFAR, the US government, has a very big separate fund. Um, and it puts out about three or four billion dollars a year for these diseases. And that's mostly country money, but it's also private money. It had a big impact. Uh, it was good at the time in that it still does a lot of useful things because giving a lot of money for these diseases will help um, buy basic drugs for malaria, etc., diagnostics, drugs for HIV, etc. It's keeping a lot of people alive who would otherwise have died. So this influx of money was in many ways a very good thing for a lot of people. But it brought with it... Um, uh, the idea of particularly of public-private partnerships where the private sector would partner with the public sector because the public sector didn't have much money and the private sector did. And so it seems, again, a good thing. You know, you're um, bringing more money to the problem. You're bringing private sector expertise, et cetera, on running programs. The, the problem is that along with that, clearly the private sector has to have other agendas because they have shareholders that they have to please. So inevitably you start shifting in a certain direction um, and that is not going to be towards the classic sort of WHO horizontal idea of health where communities are empowered to manage their own health and decide their own priorities. It's going to be towards stuff that you can make money from. So particularly vertical approaches and commodity based. So another, then other organizations started cropping up. So Gavi, which concentrates on vaccination and getting vaccines out and mostly vaccines for vaccine preventable diseases for children. So again, you know, in essence, a good thing. Unitaid was set up, which is, all these, and Gavi and Unitaid have both private and country money again. And the WHO, just going back, the WHO, officially the World Health Assembly is just, it's just country. So that in theory is the governance of WHO. Gavi and Unitaid and CEPI, which is a newer one, which is just concentrated on pandemics and started a few years ago. They also have private um, influence on the board. And these organizations also have far laxer rules in terms of accepting private money and corporate money. So they're quite significantly financed from the private sector. And they also give money to WHO, so they could be a conduit for private sector money to WHO. 
So we have this increasing, with this more money, which can be a good thing, we have this increasing, particularly Western corporate influence on global health by companies and by individuals who have investments in companies who will make a lot more profit if they sell more commodities to these countries. So you immediately have this conflict of interest arising. And that doesn't appear to have been managed very well. Um, and certainly I think in COVID-19, we're seeing apparently um, where that has led. And so the, the response now is not that surprising given what has happened and the way that health has changed and the significant increase of private sector and corporate influence over the direction of global policy. So, you know, the question that's just coming to my mind, again, I have to think about this lockdown policy um, that that is so different from everything that was, you know, acceptable in 2019, as you outlined earlier, right? Um, it wasn't just, uh, you know, the US that did this, it wasn't just China that did this, it was, you know, frankly, most countries. There's there's a few very, very stark outliers, right, and states in the US and so forth, but but almost everybody did this. So this is, is this, you know, is the, this, I guess, the power to institute, to influence this kind of policy, is that already, you know, sitting at the WHO or somewhere else, or where is that? So the power to recommend it is there. Um, how that is, you, um, whether countries bow to that power varies. So we saw countries this time, such as Sweden, Tanzania, a few others that did not lock down, um, did not institute masking policies, etc. And they appear to have had the same COVID mortality as other countries. And it appears that they're having less collateral damage, which isn't surprising. Um, for, you know, for, we don't expect these policies to really help with an aerosolized respiratory virus overall. They may slow it down slightly. But, you know, if you're, if you're locking down, you know, countries like India or, you know, parts of Africa or other fairly dense population centers, you're not um, stopping people from interacting with each other. People live in very high density situations. They need to go out every day to get food. Uh, they don't have refrigerators. They need to um, go to communal toilets, whatever. I mean, they're going to keep interacting. They have to go to markets. They, but all they, all you're doing is stopping them from getting any income. So instead of being at risk of the virus on an income, they're at risk of the virus with no income. So we don't expect that really to help. Um, in Western countries, Again, the you know we saw we I mean the policies are very strange like I mean things like curfews I mean as if the virus only spreads after 10 p.m. So if you stop people going out at 10 p.m. you'll stop spread. It's just that I mean really that these are ludicrous things to do from a public health point of view. Um, we we knew very early on that it was concentrated particularly on old people and people who were already sick with metabolic disease. So we could have concentrated on them and a lot of people advocated for that but the idea of locking down children and working age adults who are fit and well and that 
intrinsically very low risk from this virus and thereby putting them at all these other public health risks. It's not a rational response. Um, but so yet this, you know, what you're describing as an irrational response ostensibly and with, you know, the data to support that it isn't a good response, uh, widely available now, is essentially being codified as a way to deal with pandemics going forward with a massive bureaucracy. People are describing this as a power grab, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste is another uh, sort of, you know, euphemism that I hear often. I mean, that so like everything you're telling me right now, I can't I keep coming back to this, like what is going on, right? Is this what's going on? Yeah. And it, it's hard. To, it's hard for me to see the WHO in a way, you know, running a power grab, yeah? The, the, the WHO is influenced by the countries which comprise its assembly. It's influenced by the private donors and the corporate donors who fund a lot of its programs. So it, it responds to those who direct it. Um, so it certainly is pushing a very new way of managing health and of managing decision-making in health, particularly in outbreaks, that is clearly to the advantage of these donors of WHO, but is also potentially, because of the harm it seems to be doing to economies and democracy, is potentially to the advantage of certain countries within WHO as well. And we're not, you know, the world is a diverse place. Um, not all countries agree with each other. So um, it would be strange if countries weren't taking advantage of this whole situation to further their strategic interests over the interests of rival countries. One of the concerns a number of commentators uh, have about this uh, pandemic treaty and this upgrade to the regulations is a loss of sovereignty. What do you think? So it depends on the country, but it has to be ratified to come into force. Um, but if you, if WHO can override countries and recommend border closures, etc., irrespective of the country's intent, then it does take away, in effect, it's taking away sovereignty. It's taking away, it can isolate a country and cause huge economic harm against that country's wishes. So it can be used as an instrument to target countries, to target certain regions. And it is extremely difficult for small countries to oppose these sorts of international laws because then other countries who back them can introduce sanctions or um, there can be monetary instruments from the IMF and World Bank that are withheld, etc. So, you know, there are a lot of ways that even though it doesn't directly change sovereignty. In effect, it does. It takes away the ability of the people of that country to make their own decisions. You know, and again, not to beat a dead horse here, but for countries that do have huge influence of the WHO or private institutions that have huge influence of, of, over the WHO, that seems to be giving them a lot of power to dictate effectively policy of other countries. Um, absolutely, yes. And if we build this bureaucracy, it'll be a lot of the funding will be directly or indirectly from these private interests. We will have 
hundreds, perhaps thousands of people in these organisations that depend on pleasing a donor to keep their job and keep the job of those around them, keep their pension fund, keep their healthcare, health benefits, etc. So there is a big incentive structure in these organisations to please the donor. People for good reasons want to keep their team funded, keep their co-workers in a job. But the effect of that is that you end up giving very strong influence to these interests, these funders. Um, and so if they need a very low threshold for declaring a public health emergency and having teams go and investigate in these countries, then they will do that. And if you surveil with PCR tests or whatever for viruses, you will find them. In, and you know, the definition of a pandemic, importantly, is with, for WHO, doesn't include severity. It, it's very loose definition. It's not clearly defined within the WHO, but it is essentially a widespread of a pathogen, a virus, bacteria. It doesn't have to kill people. It doesn't have to be severe. It just, it has to be widespread. And the, you know, lots of viruses are widespread. New viruses, respiratory viruses will always become widespread. In these regulations, the International Health Regulation Amendments and in the, the draft ideas for the pandemic treaty, you don't have to have a pandemic. You, you have to have a threat of a pandemic. And the, the Treaty Zero Draft envisions private sector involvement in this, in data gathering, in modelling, predictive modelling, as we saw last time, COVID, and, and in the response. So, yeah, so it doesn't have to be a severe pandemic or a severe outbreak, a severe disease. It doesn't even have had to break out much. It just has to be something they notice that is new that is a threat. So, yeah, it's, it's something that can be used almost perpetually to institute local, regional or global lockdowns and interruption of trade and all that goes with it and the harms that accrue from those. Well, and I understand uh, these organizations aren't just funding, you know, these international organizations. They're funding, you know, related organizations. The, well, they are. That's, that's, we have the same predominant funders. Um, now funding the training colleges. So you know, there's been a proliferation of global health schools or global health colleges are called within universities, particularly in North America, also in Europe. And they receive partial or very significant funding from the same sources, private sources. And they're for very clearly specified purposes. So this is training the people who work in these organizations. Um, they're funding the research for a lot of these diseases. They'll fund the modeling group. So in COVID, there is a very significant impact of modeling, which turned out to be well off mark from Imperial College in London and from IHME at the University of Washington in the US. They're both funded very heavily from the same source. Um, so, and in the new, in the zero draft of the treaty, the WHO treaty that's being proposed, there is specific mention of the inclusion of private research, private data gathering, private predictive modeling 
um, so non-government, within the program that is being proposed that will assess whether a pandemic should have a response or an outbreak should have a response and therefore whether pharmaceutical companies, for instance, will make lots of money or not. So yeah, the, it, these conflicts of interest aren't just at the WHO level. They've, you know, the, the whole system ha has gone this way and it, it, it may not, you know, it may be for good intent. Um, people want to spend their money on something that is useful, but in the end, it means that one person or one very small group of individuals is extremely influential. They have a different background than most other people. Their priorities are different. They have other interests that they're protecting. These people, these corporations, etc., are doing what the, the colonial companies of Britain and Holland and so on did in the past. So it's very much a form of colonialism. They're really controlling the lives of populations in other countries to quite a large extent by owning this whole process from top to bottom. You're making decisions that you think are best and that your funder thinks are best, but not necessarily that the people that are going to suffer the consequences think are best. Well, you know, what you're describing, of course, you know, is rife with potential conflicts of interest and also, you know, creates this um, opportunity for groupthink, even in, among a small group of people, if those people are experiencing groupthink, suddenly that can get kind of implemented at a global scale, it would seem. Very much so, yeah. We, we've seen that in all aspects of the last two years where it's extremely difficult for professionals to step out of line. And so it, it's, it's groupthink, but with the, um, the hammer in the background as well that you could lose your job if you don't comply. Well, and so maybe I want to finish up with just, you know, kind of your motivation, because what, what you're doing, what you're talking about here in this interview is very, very different from what a lot of people in your field in these international organizations or, you know, global funds or so forth are actually doing and saying. So what what is it that is making you do this a little bit differently or a lot differently? Well, firstly, I'm not alone. Um, you know, I'm part of an organization, organization Panda, which is um, trying to um, promote really open discourse and honest debate and um, evidence in science and public health. There are other organizations trying to address this as well. Public health is about costs and benefits. You can't be a public health physician without weighing these up for a new intervention and figuring out what's the best way to to um, address the population's need. If you are actively doing harm, it's not really an excuse to say that you're following orders. So there are people in these organizations who are clearly trying to put out data on the harm that's being done. And there are, you know, UNICEF and others have put out very useful information on this that's really important but seems to be ignored. Um, the same organization which is dedicated to vaccinating children is now the lead implementer for COVAX, which is COVID-19 vaccination in low-income countries. So you know, we know that from a recent study, which included WHO and CDC personnel, that almost everyone in Africa is now immune to COVID. They were immune um, 
back in, there was over 70% is estimated back in September 2021. That was before Omicron. So we can assume everyone's immune. We know that natural immunity is as good or better than COVID vaccination, but we have UNICEF at the same time leading this push to vaccinate all these already immune people at a cost that they're talking about $35 billion globally. And to give one booster, the cost would then go up to about 61 billion. So you're talking about 20 times or 15 times what we spend every year on malaria. And this is just for a vaccine which doesn't stop transmission. So yeah, this is insane. It doesn't make sense. So it's hard to go along with because you can't go away with something which is not just insane, but is doing a lot of specific harm to people. It just, it, you know, it doesn't fit with what public health is supposed to be. Rational thought has gone out the window here. Well, Dr. David Bell, any final quick thoughts as we finish? I think it's really important that people educate themselves quickly um, and that they understand the history of pandemics, so they understand that the real risk and the relatively low risk compared to other diseases and that they pressure parliaments because this is it's parliaments where this will stop or you know, Congress in this country, etc. They need to get their local members to ask questions and to demand rational debate around these issues of why are we in such a rush? Why are we not looking at the costs as well as the benefits? Um, and, and just questioning the whole conflict of interest that has grown around this area so that we, we need to step back and we need our governments to insist that everyone steps back, takes a deep breath and then sort of restructures um, global health, free of conflicts of interest, etc., so that we can make rational decisions that are population-based and not profit-based. Well, Dr. David Bell, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Jan. It's a pleasure. Thank you all for joining Dr. Bell and me for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. The Epoch Times is growing quickly, and we're currently hiring an associate producer to join the Epoch TV team to work on both American Thought Leaders and Cash's Corner. It's a time of rampant misinformation and propaganda, and you'll be part of the solution as we bring back honest journalism. If you're interested or you know someone who might be a good fit, head over to ept.ms slash associate producer. That's ept.ms slash associate producer all one word. We look forward to hearing from you. Try a 14-day free trial of Epoch TV at ept.ms slash free trial yan. That's ept.ms slash free trial j-a-n.